Thanks, Nick. You do need to make an appointment with me. Sort of like that thunder in the background. I told the 930 service, I am not as polished as Robert. And then I thought, wait a minute, what did I say? Robert polished? No, he is very polished. Um, it is an honor, and I am humbled to be here to speak to you today. Um, I've spoken to large crowds. Largest, I think, was around 3,000 at a meeting one time in Boston. And I can tell you uh, that wasn't quite as nerve-wracking as the week that I've had in pre preparation for this. Robert sort of prophetically at our elder meeting Monday said, you know, we're praying for you, Jimmy, uh, but we know Satan's going to throw a lot of things your way this week. And sure enough, they came. Um, so we have uh, lots of stuff going on in our family and uh, didn't get a whole lot of sleep the last last couple of nights, but uh, the Lord's got something for us. I know that because he's had something for me. I am not an expert on scripture. I'm not an expert even with children, but, you know, the Lord doesn't call us to be experts. He calls us to be available, and uh, that's what I, I want to enter in with you this morning as we listen to him and what he has to say uh, to us this morning. We've been talking about Galatians. Are we up and running, or at least half are we up and running? So everybody can look to my left, you're right. Uh, Robert's been preaching out of Galatians, and Galatians is a book that teaches us that we can be free, that we have freedom in Christ, that there is a better way, and that a life turned inward is a life that is held back. And that's important for us. We're going to be looking at that as it relates to children this morning. How does that relate to our lives into our children's lives. Even if you don't have kids, or maybe your kids are grown, it's important because we are the church, and the church is comprised of children, and they are corporately all of our children. Let's look in Galatians. Galatians chapter uh, 3, verses 25 through 29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Father, I stand before you as a sinful person, as a sinful man. Lord, forgive my sin, forgive our sin corporately as we come to you. Father, we want to be free. We want to be free in the knowledge that you give of your saving grace that was poured out so truly from the cross. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have beyond the words that are spoken, that are read. But Lord, may your Holy Spirit convict us, enliven us to where we can see you. For it's in your name we pray. So Galatians is a book about freedom. It's a book of contrast, though. There's a lot of contrast, in, and I think that's pertinent to our lives today. But these are some of the contrasts that you see in the book of Galatians. Paul says that we were lost in Adam, but now we're saved in Christ. There's a false gospel, particularly that the Judaizers were giving to those who were saved. But then there's the true gospel. We have man's reasoning of things, things that make perfect sense to us when we look at them, 
But then we have God's revelation. So it's different in the wording there. So we have the reasoning of man and the revelation of God. We have the law, which is good, which is put into place, as these verses just said, as a guardian to lead us to Christ. But now that Christ has come, we have something better. We have um, grace through him. We have works, the things that you can do. And then we have faith which is ultimately better and allows you to have those works which are pleasing to God. We're servants in bondage formally or when we choose to choose other things that are less important, less needy as far as spiritual matters go. But then we're free as sons and daughters of Christ. There's an old covenant that again was good. It was put into place to lead us toward God. But now that the new has come, the old is fallen away we can live in the flesh or we can walk in the spirit they are the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit we have a situation where the world or ourselves is the object of glorying ourselves or getting glory for us and then the contrast of the cross is the sole object of glorifying all of these contrasts it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you look at our world today, there's lots of contrast. Now, some of you may be here today, you're not Christians. You're seeking the Lord. Maybe the Lord is calling you to him. You're here. Somebody kidnapped you, brought you here today. That's the person back there with the duct tape over their mouth. You got here some way today. You were coerced maybe to get be here. God's got you here for a reason, whatever it is. And certainly we would say that if you haven't quite seen God's grace in your life through the cross then you may have a lot of conflict in your life. Anywhere where there's contrast, where you have a contrast of what you expect and then what you get, there's going to be a lot of conflict in that. And our world is no different. Now, Galatia was the same way. Galatia, the letter to the Galatians, it's actually a region. It's not really a city in Asia Minor. So they had known this. So at about 250 B.C., the Celtics, not the team, or the Celts came through, however you want to, I don't know if it's, is it Celts or Celts? Who's an English major in here? Celts, thank you. So it's the Celts, the hard K. The Celts came through from Gaul, and they were really migrating around, sort of uh, uh, looking for a place to, to um, have their, uh, sort of conquer, really. They came into Galatia, the northern Galatia, and occupied that region. Then a couple of more hundred years went by, and in 189 B.C., the Romans came in and truly conquered. And as the Romans were likely to do, they embraced the culture, but they also added to the culture, added stipulations to it. And then in 25 B.C., Caesar Augustus said, let's name this after the history, this region after the history that it has enjoyed, particularly with the Celts. So they were Gauls, so they named it Galatia, which is a derivation of Gaul. So think about that. Anytime you have groups of people taking over and a mixing of cultures, you know that there's a lot of friction with that. There's a lot of uncertainty about some of the things that you've learned that you have come to know as the way that you grew up. You had these Jews that had grown up being followers of the one true God. And the only thing that they knew is all of these regulations that they should follow to the T so that they may gain pleasure as God's people. And now you have this other 
culture coming in as Paul comes through, particularly to southern Galatia, on his first missionary journey, and he brings the good news of Christ, the one who can fulfill the covenant. But still, you have this conflict, old covenant, new covenant, rules, works, now faith in Christ. We have the same thing today. I mentioned you may be here, you may not be a Christian. You see this conflict probably better than most, but Christians, followers of Christ, we see it too, right? We're reminded of that this week. I'm saved by grace. I'm enjoying this new life in him. And then I see on the news feed or social media something bad happening, like a school shooting in Florida. What does that do to you? What does that do to me? It makes me mad. And I'm not going to go into all the different ways we could debate about how to fix the problem. But in today's world, the reality of it is, is that there are conflicts. There are conflicts. And there's something in me, particularly when I see the life that Christ gives, and then see the death that this world embraces. And it shouldn't be that way. We as Christians should be, it's an old term, riled up, right? It's a good southern term. Riled up, we should be angry about that. It should stir something within us. To do something. That's what this church is here to do. Maybe not in not quite dramatic ways, but yeah, in small ways, in little ways, there's plenty of that. This world is broken. And we have the kingdom of God being thrust into this world as it was in Galatia and causing conflict with all these contrasts. What do we do? So for the believer, the follower of Christ, we're forced to live in a world of contrast. This kingdom is upside down, right? We just sang about it. God, our God, is a lion. Man, I like that. Did y'all see Drew over here? Man, he's just railing when he gets to that point. He's like, our God is a lion, man. He's coming out. He's roaring. And then we say that he's a lamb. That just doesn't quite jive, does it? It doesn't fit together in our minds of what God is sometimes. And we know that's the truth of it, that he's the lamb of God who was slain. But then he roars like a lion. He's a lion of Judah. Contrast. Kingdom of God is contrast. It's a kingdom that's upside down. If you think that you're really something, you're important, you should be number one in the kingdom, you're probably last. And the opposite is true. In fact, Jesus gives us point examples of that all the time. So for us, for believers, we live in that world. Romans 8 talks about this. So verses 28, uh, 23 through uh, 28 the world is in childbirth pains. It's groaning for the consummation of what God is doing. It's not just us. It's not just believers. We're saved, and we look at things and say, that's not right. Why not? And by the way, you can hear that it's going to be okay. I think one of the detriments of modern Christianity, which, by the way, has always been there, is that once you're saved, everything's going to be okay, right? You're going to be saved. You're going to have lots of money. Uh, you're going to have great relationships. Some of you have lived this out and you are shaking your head right now. Thank you. That's just not it. You could tune in to lots of people on TV probably right now and they're saying everything's going to be fine. But what happens when your spouse gets sick and dies? What happens when you feel like you do everything right and your kids won't talk to you? What happens... When tragedy hits your own life, there's conflict. 
there's this kingdom thrusting itself into the world. And as Romans 8 says, we're all in childbirth. All in childbirth. I'm a guy, if you hadn't noticed. I had the utmost respect for women, particularly going through childbirth, right? And I've had the privilege of seeing that, both with my wife and with others. And I've uh, also had the privilege of, you know, we, uh, of birth, of, of catching. It's not really birthing, but I've delivered uh, babies, right? I know we've got a couple of OBGYNs in the crowd. The moment I knew I was not going to be an OBGYN, it was my first rotation, my third year of medical school, and you're sitting there, and you're like, you're, you're <laughs> ready, right? You're, cat, you're the catcher, right? That's your job. You don't want to drop this baby. The baby comes. You're doing other stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm the quarterback, and I got the ball. I get the ball. I get the ball, and I'm going with the ball. Like, and the center's on his own at this point. I'm going with the baby. I'm like, I'm, I'm all about this baby. I'm like, yes, going to take care of you. And then my attending yells at me, the resident yells at me. He's like, you got to get back over here to mom. Other people can take care of the baby. I'm like, mom's on her own. But it's tough. There's pain and agony. And I don't care how, maybe you're, you did this. Maybe you, somehow God gave you the grace to endure it this way. I don't care how practiced you are. I've had heard, had heard way too many conversations between couples like, all right, honey, you gotta, you got to be strong for me now. I don't want any, of those, any drugs in my system and everything. Everything's got to go just right. And it gets down to it, and she's yelling at him and maybe calling him some things that he doesn't want her to call him. Uh, and what does he do? Anesthesiologist, please come in, quick. <laughs> it's tough. That's our world. That's our world. And as planned out as we like to have it with our world, even if you inject Christianity in, there's lots of that too, isn't it? Look at politics. All kinds of Christianity injected in. It's interesting that Jesus didn't do that. He interfaced with individuals about their faith. As calculated as you can be with that, just like in childbirth, when it comes, it's painful. You can't really predict it very well. And sometimes bad things happen. That's the world. That's the world that we live in. Same thing with our kids, right? Parenting, whether it's your kids, whether it's the church's emphasis on family ministry and student ministry, children's ministry. You've got to understand the biblical perspective of that. Now, if we're forced to live in this world of contrast, what does that mean? This kingdom that's upside down. There's problems with that friction even for believers. Sometimes you get way off. Acts 8, the disciples are preaching the gospel. People are being saved, and the Holy Spirit comes, and they're changed. People are changed. It's like it's palpable. Bam, it happens, and they're changed. Simon, the magician in Samaria, he's like, this is great. He earned his living by being a magician, by doing things for people, and he said, you know what? That is a good thing. Now, his motives may have been totally, they probably were totally off track. But what does he say? Let me buy that. He goes to the disciples. I will pay you money, old system that he grew up with. If I do something for this, I pay you money, I can get this power. And then I can use it. Give me this power. He totally misses it. Totally misses it because of that friction. People tend to push back when their own systems of thinking about things are challenged. 
right? Don't you do that? I do that. The Galatians did it. Those Jews in southern Galatia, man, they were living for God, they thought. They were doing all these things. They were doing every little rule that they'd grown up as kids, learning how to do. Don't eat this. Don't eat that. Don't do this on this day. Do this a certain way. Wash your hands a certain way. And they were imposing that on something that was better. We tend to push back in those situations. Maybe, though, that struggle is meant to be there. How do you know that? End of Jesus' life. When people die, I've seen this as a physician. I've been, uh, you know, I've seen people when they're, when they're born, beautiful moment that you can be a part of a family when they're born. That's one of the things I love about pediatrics is I see the two-week visit. It's great. They come in, beautiful baby. Make sure, you know, you do all the things that we need to do to make sure that they're gaining weight appropriately, everything. But the beauty of that moment is awesome. One of the best things that I love to do is to say, even if that baby's the ugliest baby in the world, <laughs> say, that is a beautiful baby. And hopefully, if mom's not too sleep-deprived or depressed, to see that mom turn and look at that baby and smile. Beautiful. You see that? You're invited in at the end of people's lives to see what they do when they die. What if you knew you were going to die this week? What if you knew that you're going to die, let's just pick a day, Friday. Friday's going to be your death, and it's going to be horrendous. And the people around you are not going to understand it. You know what's going to happen. What would you do with your time between now and then? I can tell you what people do when they're given that diagnosis. Cancer, you got three months to live. They try to make things right. They get busy. They do stuff. That's the context of John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus knows he's going to die. He's been preparing his disciples for that, but now he really wants to do it. These guys that have been with him, been with him all along throughout his ministry, he says, this is how it's going to be. He says things like, John 14, guys, I'm going away. The Holy Spirit's going to come and comfort you. Comfort. i got to go away. If I go away... I'm going to build you something better. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But hard things, too. Hey, guys, you know that the world hates me. You know that people hate me. They've tried to kill me. They're about to kill me. Guess what? They're going to come after you. They're going to come after you hard. Do you think that a servant is better than their master? No, they're going to come after you, and it's going to be difficult. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I'm going to die, but I've overcome the world. Contrast. So maybe the contrast is what the Holy Spirit, at least one of the tools that the Holy Spirit uses to do what? That's the real question, right? Why? If I know why about something, I can understand it better. Scripture doesn't say everything's going to be hunky-dory. It says that things are going to be hard. The struggle is meant to be there because the struggle that we have of this kingdom thrusting itself into a fallen world focuses our attention on the spiritual reality of what's going on. I like to fly fish. I'm decent at it. I don't know. Sometimes my sons are better at it than me. I love watching them fly fish now. So one of the things I taught them when they were younger is you got to read the water. So in other words, you can see what's on the surface if you're fly fishing. Larry knows this too. So you see the water, but you don't always see what's underneath it. But if you read the water, you understand like these little surface movements of the water 
behind a rock or, or in a riffle, that they mean something, that there's something below the surface. There's a way to look at that, to read that, and to, to notice that, and sometimes to notice that there might be a fish that's just underneath the surface of the water. Reading the water is what the Holy Spirit does with these struggles. This is not the total reality. In fact, it's not the main reality. Now, that's hard to grasp. It's hard for me to grasp sometimes. Your child being happy where they are right now, today, may not be the total reality. They may have to fail so that they can be shown how Christ is grace in their life. Why should they be any different than the rest of us? Galatians has just told us that. There's no longer any distinction. Hard. Hard being a parent. My mom told me this a lot. Like, it's hard being a parent. It's hard being a parent. It's tough. It's hard for the church to minister to children as well in this conflict. How do you equip parents, which is what Fonder Church wants to do, how do we equip parents to truly be the spiritual leaders for their kids, but also for those who may not have that experience, those children who don't? What's the safety net? What, what's the reality of that? Romans 12, 1 through 2 is a familiar passage. Verse 2 says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can see what God's will is for us, his perfect and good will for us. Did you catch that? Not conformed to the world, but transformed. It doesn't say pulled out. Jesus even prayed that, John 14, 15, 16. I pray that you wouldn't pull them out of the world, God, but that you'd keep them there and that they would what? Thrust the kingdom forward. That they would be transformed by the renewing of their minds so that they could see what God's perfect will is. That's the why question, right? That answers the why question. So the question is, is it possible to see the gospel, but sometimes to miss the gospel? Of course, Pharisees, scribes, lots of people, you, me. Can you be saved and miss the gospel? Yeah, in some small ways. I do it every day. You do it too. It's a struggle. God says to Peter, eat this, but Lord. How is it Peter is the only one that can get away with saying, but Lord? Do you notice that? He's just honest about it, I think. Things that we've been taught culturally, our experiences, may not be true for the kingdom. May not be true. There's something that we teach medical students in residence about cognitive bias. In other words, contrary to popular belief, Patients don't tell you what's going on with, well, actually, a lot of people do. They say, I read on the internet, here's what's going on with me. Here you go. <laughs> but they don't always tell you that. And sometimes they don't read the textbook, which means they present in different ways. That's the fun of it. If you're a physician, you get to be a detective. You get to figure out things. You get to say, okay, let me think about this. And you ask questions. You do a physical exam. And then you may do some tests to corroborate what you think is going on with them. So it's a bit of detective work in doing that. Um, but there's cognitive bias. There's biases that I can go in. Maybe I saw them limping down the hallway and I've already made my diagnosis. Oh, they've got this. I have to watch out because, you know, I'm the attending. 
I'm like the attending in charge, you know, and every once in a while, attendings like to show out and say, you know, how long have you, when did you buy that uh, belt that has nickel in it and now have a nickel allergy, you know, and patients are like, wow. One of the cool things in pediatrics to do is like when babies love carrots or sweet potatoes and they come in and they've got beta carotinemia, they're a little orange, it's a good thing. They have a little orange nose and I say, do they like carrots or sweet potatoes? And the parents are like, how did you know that? <laughs> we make assumptions sometimes though. So you can have confirmation bias, and this is not particular to medical students, this is particular to all of us. We can have confirmation bias when I approach a situation in such a way to confirm what I've already decided. Let's look at it scripturally. That would mean that I already know how God would want, I already assume I know how God would want this situation to go in my life. So now I'm going to go to scripture in such a way to confirm that. A little bit backwards, right? Sometimes we're given cancer and it doesn't get better. And I wrestle with that. We should wrestle with that. Confirmation bias. Or we anchor to one thing. We anchor like, I know this is what it is and I'm just going to defend it and just get away from me. This is not that diagnosis. It's this one, okay? lots of biases that we have. There's biases that we have with God and how he wants to reveal himself in the lives, in our life and in the life of our family. So there's a struggle. So what about the life of the church and children? So children are a gift from the Lord, right? Scripture describes children being gifts for us. And some of you have gone even the extra mile in saying, I want to go out, not just my biological children, I want to adopt those children foster those children, volunteer time for those children. Your kids may be grown, gone, but you're investing in that. I want to invest in my church to do more. I usually do that at 9.30. I missed them today. They all gave me high fives when they came in the gym. Those were going to uh, Fun Zone. God calls us to do that with our kids. First with the family, then with the church. In fact, he makes this distinction again personally in Luke 9. Do we have those verses? Context, an argument. Why would an argument ever erupt among the disciples? An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and he put the child by his side. Living parable, by his side, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. That's a big deal. It sort of tells you who kids are in our society, or at least the way Jesus looks at them, right? The way we should look at them. Isn't it interesting in scripture that the fringe groups that Jesus emphasizes. It's not that he ignored people. I mean, he went and ate with Pharisees. He, he tells them how it is that they're hypocrites and, you know, what goes on. But he's also a friend of them, a friend of sinners. Who are the fringe groups in Scripture? A lot of times, it's those who are lonely, who've been abandoned, who've been left alone, widows, orphans, children, sick, needy. Jesus 
draws them to himself. He goes to them in particular. It's interesting the emphasis there and almost ignoring other groups of people. Do we emulate that in the church? That's our challenge, right? Do we emulate that? Do we flock to them? Do we go straight to them? Some of you may have seen a picture. I almost included it. And actually, the story was a little bit different. Uh, uh, there was a little girl with Down syndrome that sort of wandered up. The sto- first story was she wandered up to the Pope. He was given a homily. And all of the uh, security guards said, no, get away. And the Pope went up and, and Pope Francis uh, offered her to sit by him while he finished. So it's not quite like that. Actually, he was. this was back in October. And he was uh, giving a speech to, I think it was Special Olympics. And this little girl gave him something, and he invited her to come up um, and, and sit down, uh, or she wouldn't, she wouldn't go back to her seat. But it's that elevation of children in our lives. It's a great picture, at the very least. Elevation of children in our lives. You know, our, our ministry of the family that we have to our own kids is one of uh, that time really comes into it. There's so many things that can crowd out your time. Same thing with God, right? It's his children. Lots of different things crowd out our time with him. We can always make excuses. So we've emphasized time. In fact, there was a big study back in 2015 about, you know, how much time do parents spend with their own children? So any guesses? Anybody read that? Anybody know? An hour? 30 minutes? It's about 40 minutes a day on average. Now, the interesting thing was, if you really dive down and see what they were doing while they were spending time with their children, it was watching something on TV, watching a movie, lives in parallel, not coming around in circles with our own kids. But it's even more interesting that one of the main protective factors for those kids from a psychological, emotional level later on was not so much the time, it was if that parent really wanted to be there, if they cared about being with their children. That was even more important. A third less likely to have traumatic events in their life on an emotional level later. Interesting. Independent of time. There's a perception of children, and then there's the application of children. As it relates to the application of children, this is what we are being charged to do, individually and corporately. Lou Pangaro. Lou Pangaro is an educator. He's an internal medicine doctor uh, with the Uniform Health Sciences. I don't even know if the guy's a Christian, but he's got some great Christian concepts, I think, that are pertinent to this today. To impact our kids, individually as a family, and then also corporately as a church, takes three things. He says, as far as education, that it takes something to be a good doctor, to be a learner that's moving up to a competence level to take care of a patient. You have to have something in the head, something in the heart, and something in the hands. Something in the head, the heart, and the hands. Fits with scripture. Romans 12, 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. If you don't know something about it, then hey, there is plenty of stuff to read. Scripture pours out itself into it of how we can be better parents for our kids. You may know somebody to talk to in groups about that if you're having a situation. Something in the head. Something in the heart. 
John chapter 7. It's the Feast of the Tabernacles is the backdrop. It's where Jesus gets up on the last day of the feast and he says, All those who are thirsty, come to me and drink because I will give you fountains of living water. Here's the backdrop that we're not told. That feast was to celebrate God delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt into freedom. And during that wilderness months when there was conflict, they didn't have their needs, he gave them water. And on the last great day of that feast, they called it the great day, the priest would take two pitchers, one that had wine in it and one that was empty. He would walk down the steps through the water gate to the pool of Siloam. He would dip that empty pitcher into the pool of Siloam and walk back up the steps through the water gate to the temple. And as he walked along, the road was lined with people who were singing Psalm 118, quoting it. And then when the priest got to the top of the temple, he would pour the wine into a basin. He would pour the water into a basin to celebrate that. That moment, Jesus stands up and says, that's good, this is better. What are we choosing? Are you choosing to cheer your child on as a spectator, which is good? Are you involved in their life with living water pouring out of you from the what God has put on your heart to pour into them? Better, right? Something in the head, something in the heart, and then the last part, something in the hands. We got to do it. We got to do it. We should pray when there are school shootings, when there is tragedy in the world. But social media is partly right. We can't just pray. We got to do something. You see your kid faltering, you see them really hurting, and you're praying for them. Do something. You see these kids pondering church in the neighborhoods, what they need in local schools. Do something. James says if we see, if we read, if we hear scripture, and then we don't do it, we're like a man who sees himself in the mirror and then he turns around and he forgets it immediately. That's our charge. Something in the head, something in the heart, something in the hand. This is how it applies. These are my charges. And this is them a little bit older, actually a couple of months ago. Man, time is short. Time is short. Church, this is where I am at 930. That's Lazarus, by the way. Next slide. That's teamwork. They're not just sitting around playing. You know what they have taught me? What they can teach us? They have. What they need from us? That's our charge. I can't do it. I don't know enough. We can teach you in the head. I don't have it in my heart. Pray. Pray for those who are doing it. We need it. <laughs> then just do it. Don't turn your back on the Holy Spirit today on what he is saying to you and moving you. And I know God is not calling everybody to children's ministry in a church. But he's calling us to something. 
There's therefore no Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. We are all one. One. You can't pick and choose. You can't have cognitive bias going into something to say, Lord, I know that you only want me to do this and that I will never do anything else. Because he'll probably force you into doing something different. He is God. The God of contrast, the God of his church that is thrusting itself into a society that is lost so that they can see and that we can see what his true and perfect will is for our lives. We're going to have a time of response like we normally do at Fondren Church in just a few minutes after I pray. I'd ask you to be open to what the Holy Spirit is leading. Stay where you are. Engage with him. Come down front. This altar is open to pray. There'll be several of us down front, too, to talk to you if you would like to talk to us. But ask him to do business with your heart today. Father, we thank you for this time. We love you. God, you gave it all. You gave it all. You are frustrating to your disciples. You're frustrating to us sometimes. We wrestle with you just as Jacob did. God, I pray that we would leave changed, even if we're limping for the rest of our life. God, I pray that you would do business in us today. God, thank you for our children. They give us so much joy and sometimes grief. God, it teaches us about you. It teaches us all how we are your children, how you grieve for us, how you have aspirations of what we could be, of how children have enlarged our hearts so that we could see the heart of our God, who's a lion that gives his son as a lamb. God, move us today. Move us to not just see something, but to do something. To follow your example as believers. God, we pray this today.